Hello and welcome to the Methades Bible Study Podcast. Methades is the weekly Sunday school class of Ian Pittman. As a teaching ministry of Kokomo Baptist Church, Methades encounters and explores Bible doctrine, theology, and apologetics as a Christian community learning the doctrines of Scripture and the lifestyle they require. Thanks for listening. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, so we're going to pick up with our study of Romans 9 through 11. Uh, last week we did some kind of introductory stuff uh, with Paul and looking at Paul's theology, looking at how Paul redefines uh, monotheism, election, and eschatology in light of uh, the revealed Christ. So he takes these traditionally Jewish notions and he reassesses them uh, with Christ now as the primary uh, impulse behind all of that. Uh, So he takes, we looked at Deuteronomy, he takes the Shema, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and he works Christ into that. Um, And he takes election as well, uh, speaking of Christ as we saw in, not in Romans, but in others of his letters, he takes Christ, refers to him as the true Israel and the new Israel, and so we see that Israel's election then is opened up in light of the fact that uh, Christ has come, Christ is the true Israel, and Israel is God's chosen people. All right, so this morning we're going to pick up with Romans uh, 9 through 11, and we're actually going to do this kind of starting in the middle. So go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 10. Uh, Romans chapter 10, we're going to start in uh, verses 1 to 17. We'll read those and then uh, go from there. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed that he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That's where we're going to start this morning. We're going to actually go back and pick up with verse 6, looking at verses 6 through 8. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. So if there's a central point at which Paul brings together this theology with these redefinitions of uh, monotheism, election, and eschatology, it is right here. What Paul is saying in some sense is your faith has previously been based on works. Um, it has previously been based on keeping the covenant, keeping the laws of the covenant, and now we have the revealed Christ, and because we have the revealed Christ, uh, your faith can no longer be based on those works because Christ has fulfilled them, but in fact must be based on faith. And then we get that uh, lovely phrase that we use in the Romans Road to Salvation, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, Paul also, though, in these three verses is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30, and he's using language that describes the renewal of the covenant and the end of exile. So remember, when we think about Israel's history, we always think about Israel in terms of the covenants that they've established with God, but we also think about Israel in terms of their exile because of their sin, uh, their redemption or their salvation. They come out, they're still usually in exile in the case of the 40 years in the wilderness, and then they are brought back into right relationship only to sin and do the whole thing again. Uh, this is the way Israel's history works. So what Paul does here is he takes that core of their history, which the Jews would have understood, and he brings it into a Christian perspective, one in light of Christ. So this righteousness based on faith is a picture of a faith-based covenant. In Deuteronomy 30, this covenant is a commandment in the mouth and circumcised heart of God's people so that they can obey. But in Romans 10, Paul says that the word is in your mouth and your heart. Uh, that word is now the gospel. Rather than being the law, rather than being the law of the covenant, now we have the gospel. We see this in verse 9. Uh, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that verse. There he's talking about justification. We have the one God's declaration, which is this redefined monotheism. Then we have his declaration of those who are in the right as members of the one covenant people. So now we have opened up election. And these one covenant people are participating in a future act of God as declaring them in the present. So we have this redefined eschatology. Um, that is now because of Christ this faith has been opened up to include the Gentiles as well. Now if we go back to verse 3 of Romans chapter 10, we'll see there that what Paul recognizes is the Jews are seeking to, as he puts it there, seeking to establish their own and did not submit to God's righteousness. They're wanting their own covenant membership and they're wanting to keep it the way they've always had it by keeping the law. Now, why anybody would want to keep the law, I have no idea. Uh, that is impossible. Nobody's ever been able to do it. Paul says that he kept all 613 of the Jewish laws. He did, and yet he was still a moral reprobate um, until the Damascus Road experience. Uh, Christ is the only person who has successfully kept the whole of the law and been without sin while he did it. Uh, which makes him the only fitting sacrifice. But what Paul recognizes in Romans 10 is the Jewish people want this covenant relationship to continue as it always has in light of those works. Uh, but then when he gets to verses 12 and 13, he says justification and salvation are open to Jew and Greek alike, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, this is that radical redefinition. This is what makes Christianity 
in history past and frankly in, in history present, what makes it difficult for the Jews to wrap their minds around is that this has been opened up to those who are not considered that classic chosen people of God. Um, not least of all the fact that we believe that Christ was the Messiah and they did not. So in verse 4, and we're doing a lot of bouncing around, but in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What is he saying? Christ is the end of the law. That word for, we can almost say, in exchange for righteousness. So the, the law is no more. The law has been ended. It has been fulfilled. As Christ says, now we live under righteousness. Uh, if you want to continue that covenant language, Ms. Brenda probably would have used this language, the covenant of righteousness now, um, rather than the covenant of works or the covenant of laws. So what the God of Israel intended and what he circumcised on the hearts of his people, as Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6 says, is that there will be a new way of doing the law. And according to Paul, preaching becomes necessary in this new way. What do we mean doing the law? We mean having faith in the one who was perfect in, in the sight of the law. The one God of Jews and Gentiles has become Messiah and King in and through Jesus, which makes salvation and justification available to Jews and Gentiles. Okay, so now we've started here in the middle so that we can establish these conclusions as a baseline for interpreting Romans 9 and Romans 11. What often happens is people take their pet verses out of Romans 9 when they think about election, and they take their pet verses out of Romans 11 when they think about election, and they forget the part in uh, Romans 10 where it's clearly a radical redefinition of Israel's election, which is different than sort of this predetermined salvation election that we have these conversations about. So let's take a step back. You're going to have to keep your finger in your, in your Bible because we're going to look at Romans 9, 30 to 33, and chapter 10, 18 to 21. So we're going to kind of expand outward in both directions. All right, so Romans 9, 30 to 33, talking about Israel's unbelief here. Paul says, what shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is Paul in full Pharisee mode. He is taking, or full rabbi mode, if you want to be less uh, controversial, but he is taking the Old Testament and he is interpreting it according to what's happening now. So he's taking this prophecy that Jews would have been intimately familiar with, and he's saying, here is your stumbling block. It is the inclusion of the Gentiles into the faith. Um, flipping over to... Chapter 10, verses 18 to 21. That's the end of chapter 10. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So in 
The verses we read in chapter 9, in these four verses, he sums up the case he has been building in Romans 9, that God chose Israel to be examples of his righteousness. But they have stumbled because they pursued righteousness according to the law rather than righteousness according to faith. This goes back to, if you go back and read chapter 7 and chapter 8, Paul lays the groundwork for this understanding of what Israel has done. Uh, the Torah, or the Jewish law, gives these people the opportunity to persist in sin. But God condemns sin in the flesh of the Messiah. So you don't have an excuse anymore. You can't sin and then go make your sacrifice at the temple every year and be in good standing with the Lord. You don't have that luxury. Now you have to believe by faith. And when you believe by faith, what does that require? Repentance, turning away from. So it's a totally different understanding of how God interacts with his people on the subject of sin. Now, what's interesting is Roman, Romans 9 never mentions sin. Romans 1 through 8 does. Romans 9 doesn't. Because what Paul is more concerned about is the nature of the relationship they have to righteousness, which is that relationship through works. They stumble over the very intent of the law over and over again. The intent of the law is to do precisely what Christ did, which is to exist as sinless and perfect in the eyes of the Lord. We can't do that. We're a fallen people. So Christ comes through, and he does that on his own. But Paul's saying Israel's still trying to live that way, even though they have the Messiah right there. And I think he might even be getting at something that John gets at in his gospel, which is he came unto his own, and his own knew him not. Uh, they rejected him, and so forth. So the Jews... As we see in chapter 10, the end of chapter 10 there, the Jews want to cause jealousy among the Gentiles by establishing this covenant relationship based on works. Uh, but Paul draws upon Moses there in verse 19, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. We could read that, I will make you jealous of those who are not a chosen nation. With a foolish nation, a foolish meaning they're an ignorant or one who doesn't know, they've not received the fullness of the law. Uh, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So despite the fact that Israel wants to cause this jealousy among the Gentiles, they don't get to because the Gentiles are instead causing that jealousy among the Jews. <clears throat> and then he calls upon Isaiah, or draws upon Isaiah as well, as a witness to the fact that these Gentiles would be brought in to make the Jews jealous. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. The Messiah was promised to Israel through Israel, not to anybody else. And yet, after the Messiah has come, after he has completed his redemptive purpose, now he's open to those who didn't even have an inkling that they wanted him. So the hope for Israel is that while God has included Gentiles in the covenant family, those who have pursued covenant membership by faith... God still holds out his hands of mercy toward Israel. Verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. It doesn't say he stopped holding his hands out to these people, but he's still standing there all day long, perpetually. I have stood there with my hands of mercy. All right, back to chapter 9. I'm looking there at verses 6 to 29. Now this is a retelling of the story of Israel beginning with Abraham. This is this classic Jewish understanding of uh, 
history and their understanding of their relationship with God. I'm not going to read through all of this, but if you want to mark it off somehow, verses 9 to 13 tell of the patriarchs. Verses 14 to 18 are about the Exodus. Uh, 19 to 23 are about this pre-exile period. Now here he also alludes to Jeremiah chapter 18. Then verses 24 to 28, their exile and their return, and then verse 29, the Messiah. So this follows this Jewish historical tradition. You begin with Israel's history, and then you look toward the future with that history informing what you're looking toward. In some ways, you can read these three chapters, Romans 9 as the past, Romans 10 as the present, Romans 11 as the future. Um, it doesn't quite work, but for a rough categorization of them, it does. This isn't a general retelling of Israel's history as an example of how God saves people, though. This is describing God's action in and surrounding Israel because it is in and through Israel, in particular, that God has chosen to save the world. Again, part of what Israel forgets, their purpose is not as the chosen nation simply to continually and perpetually be preserved. It is to be preserved so that the Messiah might come through them. They've lost sight of this. That's why they're maintaining this covenant relationship based on works instead of uh, based on faith. Of course, the rest of that story is, again, they don't recognize Christ as the Messiah. So how can they have that kind of faith until they first believe? And that's what Paul seems to say in Romans chapter 10. Now, we have an allegory here to Galatians chapter 4. Um, and in fact, we'll turn there to Galatians chapter 4. Um, there at the beginning, in verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you, are not, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. When we were children, effectively, we were slaves. Prior to the coming of the Messiah, Israel operates according to the elementary principles. We can read that as the law. But in light of the Messiah now, you've been given the ownership, in effect, because God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law so that you might receive adoption as sons. So you were no longer a slave, but a son, and then a, a son, an heir. Uh, so we have this lingering in the background here uh, of Romans uh, chapter 9. Jews bear the promise as the older son, but then the younger seed arrives and he supplants the older son, in effect. So the people made of Jews and Gentiles, this younger son, and born of the heavenly Jerusalem, then, is the seed. The seed, not the seed, the seed. Uh, we see this again in Romans chapter 4 as well. We have this whole comparison here of the Isaac people. They became a people when they had not been called a people. The Isaac people, the Gentiles, become a people through the person and work of Christ. 
Now, Paul gives us this from a Jewish perspective to point out to Gentile believers in Christ that they have been included in an irreplaceable story of God's purposes in and through Israel. So we as Christians, as Gentile believers, are never to forget. The Gentiles then were never to forget or to take it uh, for granted. We are not either to forget that the reason that we exist, the reason that we have the relationship to God that we have is because of Israel. Mercy has been given to Israel in spite of their commitment to the law. So he's chosen Israel in grace to preserve them for a purpose, we know this, but they are unfaithful and sinful, then what if he has chosen to be patient with the Gentiles in the same way? We see in uh, verse 22, the Gentiles are referred to as the vessels of wrath. So, as one of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, puts it, it's not then that election simply involves a selection of some and a leaving of others, a loving of some and a hating of others. It is that the elect themselves are elect in order to be in the place where and the means by which God's redemptive purposes are worked out. So, to be an elect member, and this can go for Israel, this can go for us, to be an elect member, to be a saved individual, in a sense, means that you are committing yourself not only to belief in Christ, but that you are committing yourself as a slave, as we so often see it, to a God who has a plan, who has a purpose, and you're saying, okay, fine, I'll follow you, I'll be there, where do you need me to be? Israel's having a hard time with that, and has had a hard time with that. Let's look at Romans 9, 22 to 24. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called out, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? This is Paul's what-if moment. What, what if what I'm telling you is actually true? And in fact, we have been called so that we can open up salvation, not just to ourselves, but to the Gentiles as well. Now that's a rhetorical question in a lot of ways, because it's exactly what happened in the Messiah. And then he goes on in verse 25 to tell them this through Hosea. Uh, this is... If you want the verse reference, it's Hosea chapter 2, verse uh, 23. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And if you go on, And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So we have behind this idea of election, God's hardening of hearts, uh, whether it be Pharaoh or so forth. And then we also have God's softening of hearts toward him. And what he's saying in effect here is, to go back to verse 22, God, has, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The Gentiles are prepared for destruction because Israel is the chosen race. But 
he has done this in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he had prepared before, beforehand for glory. So Paul's not ignoring the fact that Israel was chosen. He's not ignoring the fact that Israel was special. What he's actually getting at is I have endured the Gentiles in order to make you jealous, in order to turn Israel back around, to turn them back toward me, but because I am a God of mercy, I will also include them who believe we're not just tools. God's not just using us in order to get Israel to turn back, but he has opened that door to us because of our usefulness and because of our commitment to him, those who would believe. All right, Romans chapter 11. I don't know if we're going to get through this or not, but I'm just going, so if y'all have a question, stop me. God's selection is just, yep. So think about that. God's selection is righteous. We talked about that, that similarity between just and righteous. God's selection is righteous. And then what does Paul talk about? How do you put on God's righteousness? How do you engage in God's righteousness through the covenant of faith, through belief, not through works? All right, Romans 11. Looking at verses 1 to 32, again, uh, I won't read that entirely. I don't get in the right spot. That's going to blow up, I'm fairly sure. Uh, but the first question that Paul asks here, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now, that's the question everybody has when they come to these three chapters and they get done with it. Has God rejected his people? Paul answers that question. He says, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So what is Paul saying? Well, I'm assured of my salvation, but he's going to tell them, I'm not assured of it based on my status as a Jew, but based on my status as a believer through faith. He goes on to say, through there, Israel's casting away was for the purpose of their future acceptance by way of the Gentiles. So what do we have? In some sense, we have the era of the Jews, which leads way to the era of the Gentiles, which then circles back to the era of the Jews. Salvation comes out of Israel, but Israel's salvation comes because of Gentiles' justification. So Israel is also invited to participate in this reconciliation, this redemption of Jesus the Messiah. We look there, verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? The covenant is renewed for those who confess Jesus as Lord. It doesn't have any distinction on it. We go back, for there is no Jew, there is no Greek. They are experiencing, as he puts it in verse 25, a partial hardening. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now that word fullness we've already seen when the fullness of time had come. What do we mean by fullness? Uh, yes, we have the notion of the... The total, if there is some additive thing going on in God's plan. So we have a total here, but the main impulse behind this is completion. 
when the completion of the Gentiles has come in. What does that mean? That means God has a plan for the Gentiles. There is an end, if you will, to the predominance of Gentile salvation, at which point the Jews will be ready uh, to come back into fellowship. So they are experiencing this partial hardening, but they haven't been replaced. It's just so that they will become jealous and all Israel will be saved. And we're going to look at that phrase, hopefully, in a little bit. So, breaking this chapter down. Um, chapter 11, verse 11, Israel stumbled. Chapter 11, verse 19, they were broken off. Chapter 11, verse 25, they were hardened. But then we get down to verse 31, and they're given the same mercy that's extended to the Gentiles. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. One thing that I didn't mention earlier that I should have, there is a shift in chapter 11 where Paul no longer is addressing the Jews, but he is addressing the Gentiles. So when we see this in verse 31, so they, that's talking about Israel too, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, the Gentiles, they, Israel, also may now receive mercy. So what is Paul doing? He's practicing what he preached, and he's preaching what he practiced. What he said back in chapter 10, how will they believe if no one has preached to them, and how will they be preached to if no one has been sent? Paul's doing it. He's giving it to them. He's modeling what right faith, uh, what right faith begets. And assuring the Gentiles and the Jews their mutual place in God's salvific plan. So, will Israel be saved? Well, Paul seems to go through a bit of a thought process on this, just like the rest of us do. Look at verse 14. Now, we'll start with 13. Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. That's where that shift happens. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So Paul recognizes even that his place as apostle to the Gentiles is a, a jealousy-inducing role, if you will. His purpose is not only to be the apostle to the Gentiles, which we often miss. Uh, we think the Jews rejected him, so he kicked the dust off his feet, and he went among the Gentiles. But no, Paul recognizes that his ministry is part of that same plan to make the fellow Jews jealous. And then he goes and he says, thus save some of them. Okay, but then we get to chapter, or chapter 11, verse 26, and he says, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Okay, now we have some to be saved, now we have all to be saved. And we go to verse 32. For God has consigned all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now, in verse 32, what we have there when he says that we may have, or that he may have mercy on all, doesn't mean that he's going to. It implies that the possibility is there for him to have mercy on all. It doesn't require him. Some people read Romans chapter 11 and they get universalism out of it. They say that at the end of the day, they read the fullness of the Gentiles and they say, okay, 
all of the Gentiles are going to be saved. Then they read there in verse 26, and they say, okay, all of Israel is going to be saved. That covers the whole world, so we really don't need to be doing all of the stuff that we're doing. We shouldn't force people to feel like they have to jump through an intellectual hoop and profess faith in something, because really, God's going to save them all anyhow. That couldn't be further from what Paul's saying. Uh, he has been very explicit that there are some who will not be beneficiaries of that mercy by their own disbelief. So then where does the answer to this question come from? Go back to chapter 10, verses 9 to 13. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Jews cannot boast and neither can the Gentiles, because in the covenant of faith or in the covenant of righteousness, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. God doesn't care anymore. Gentiles have been grafted in. We have that strange olive tree metaphor uh, that goes on. Uh, where does that start? Verse 17. We have this olive tree metaphor where he talks about breaking some off, grafting some back in. But if you get too happy and if you get too boastful about yourself, he'll break you off and graft Israel back in. Now, does that mean that you can lose your salvation? No, it does not. Paul is talking about, here's the one we've yet to come to this notion of corporate election. Corporate election is exactly what it sounds like. The salvation of a nation, the salvation of a people, the election of a people, irrespective to individuals within that. So when we say the fullness of the Gentiles, that's corporate election. Not all the Gentiles are going to be saved. When we say the fullness of Israel or when all Israel will be saved, that doesn't mean literally all Israel will be saved. That means those who believe by faith will be saved. Um, it also means, Paul's very good at this, and this is why I really like Paul as, as somebody who, who does literature in my day job. Um, it has two meanings there, because Christ is also the true Israel. So in the true Israel, all will be saved. His atonement, his sacrifice, his redemptive purpose is enough to save all of those who would believe, regardless of whether you believe that his atonement is only effective for a specific number of people or whether you believe that it's effective for all people if they would just believe. For Paul, honestly, that's out of the question. If you believe in Christ, it is enough. Jew or Greek, doesn't matter. Salvation for Israel is the same as salvation for the Gentile nations found in the covenant status pursued by faith in Jesus the Messiah. End of story. Now what does that say about election then, as we understand election and this notion of God calling you and you being unable to earn it on your own? The Bible is very clear about that. This has been controversy in the church for some time. There is no way, Paul has clearly demonstrated this in his recounting of Israel's history, there is no way you can do it on your own. You cannot do it by works. You can only do it by faith. But God also has a part in that faith role. 
he allows you, in some sense, to pursue that faith. How did he do that? Well, on this sort of national scale, he did this by a partial hardening of Israel so that the Gentiles might be grafted in in order to make Israel jealous, yes, but in order to complete his redemptive plan for the Gentiles as well. So all Israel means all of us, which are part of God's perfect redemptive plan. Now, what does that mean for missions and things like that? Because that's the next question that comes from the election discussion. If God only died for a select few, what good does it do us to go and do missions? Well, what did Paul say? How will they believe if they have not heard? And how will they hear if nobody goes and does the preaching? So we come to the very end. I'm really surprised we got through all of this. But we come to the end here, 11, verses 33 to 36, and we're going to go back to the very beginning, chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. But let's start with chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then we go back to the beginning. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, as fellow Jews. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So we have this opening with a lament, oh, that if I could just give up my salvation so that all Israel would be saved, I would do it. But it doesn't work that way. Because they have all the tools in their tool belt. They have everything God has promised through history, including Christ, who is God over all. And because he is God over all, he has the final say, not me, Paul. And then it closes with a praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's saying, I've just given you this. I've explained it to you in the best way I know how. I'm also saying this. I've explained it to you in the best way I know how. But at the end of the day, when it comes to why God has chosen to do it this way, we do not know. It is God's perfect wisdom, it is God's perfect judgment, and it is God's perfect plan that he has chosen to engage with his people in this way. But we cannot look at the way that he has done it and find fault. Because from him and through him and to him are all things. Anything we get, salvation, blessings, whatever the case may be, we get because of who he is and what he has done. As N.T. Wright says again, Paul is doing again what he does best, expounding the ancient faith of Israel, rethought and reimagined around Jesus and the Spirit in such a way as to take every thought captive to obey the Messiah. For Paul, at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. 
Did you get him? Do you have him? Do you know him? And at the risk of sounding like I'm preaching, don't want to get in trouble back there in the office, I'll stop. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us this evening. If you enjoyed our study, please be sure to like us on Facebook at Methodes KBC or our church page at Kokomo Baptist Church.